Suzanne Kelly is the founder, CEO, and publisher of The Cipher Brief, a national security-focused media organization. She's also a former CNN intelligence correspondent and executive producer. Suzanne, welcome to Discern This. Thank you so much, Lonzo. I appreciate it. Let me start by asking, what is The Cipher Brief, and how did you build it? Thank you for the question. Um, The Cipher Brief is a national security-focused media publication. Um, so we kind of, if you think about in the world of media, what sort of Politico has done with political news specifically, um, the Cypher Brief does with national security related news. Um, and I, gosh, the story of how I built it is a, is a long one full of, uh, tears and laughter. (laughs) It started in about 2015. Um, I, of course, as you mentioned, Lonzo had the great pleasure of working with you and a number of other extremely talented people um, at CNN for about a decade. And in 2015, um, I had learned enough to sort of launch my own startup media platform because this was really a passion for me, uh, national security in the future. Um, and understanding sort of news and and the context of a lot of these headlines that we're hearing. I felt like often, you know, with mainstream media, you have an entire world to cover and you don't have a lot of time to do it in. I'd like to now delve into the central focus of the Cypher Brief and ask, what are the biggest threats facing the United States? You know, I think there are a long list of them, and, and there are many that we focus on in the headlines and then many that get pushed to the side um, simply because there's not enough time, even in a 24-7 news cycle, to focus on all of them. Um, but I think, you know, first and foremost, um, among almost all of the experts that I talk to on a daily basis, it's China. So I think it's difficult to um, really understand the national security threat that China poses when you also look at the fact that our economies are intertwined, that we need each other to be successful um, for both economies. And the economy is really the backbone of any national security plan. Um, So I I think understanding China has been tough um, because it's on one side a partner in the economic sphere and on the other side a competitor when it comes to national security issues. But, you know, China um, has this long plan Um, You can find tons of reports um, from the Pentagon and from the ODNI, the Director of National Intelligence, and others about how they're thinking about the China threat just by Googling um, the names of the agencies in China. And I think it it leads to some really fascinating reading. But, you know, China on the technology front, there's real concern that China is outpacing the U.S. in terms of technological development. Um, when you look at China's incredible explosion of success and presence in space and in, in orbit and satellites and, and think about how much the U.S. is reliant on things like satellites for our own situational awareness, our own communications with our military, all of these things that are really critically important to U.S. national security um, China having a play um, in space and really having success there is concerning. Um, of course, the theft of intellectual property um, from the U.S. has been a really serious concern um, for decades now that still hasn't really been adequately addressed, you know, according to U.S. officials. Um, so the ability to steal a very successful company's um, intellectual property and replicate that and then compete is is really detrimental. I think understanding Um, you know, certain things like what's going on in Taiwan right now and supply chains, which COVID really woke us up to um, the very serious issue of supply chains and where we're really interdependent and dependent on others for things that are critical for national security, computer chips. 
Um, those are all really, really big deals in the world of national security. And it's not necessarily something that needs to make you push the panic button today. But if you're not focused on this and the U.S. isn't aligning to be competitive on this in 5, 10, 15 years from now, it's going to be a different world. So I think understanding and just sim simply being aware of how these stories are developing is a really big deal. I think some of the other issues in terms of national security, obviously Russia. Um, I'm very concerned not only about what Russia is doing in Ukraine, um, but I'm also concerned about the disinformation campaigns that have, are so easy to execute um, against a population that, that doesn't always understand that what they're seeing on Facebook from someone who maybe looks like them um, and talks like them, but is conveying a message that's encouraging panic and anger and trying to get you to do something and fight against someone in your own country, whether it's a political party or a different group, just the ways that Russia is exploiting um, these social media platforms for disinformation purposes and getting Americans to turn against each other is really concerning to me. Um, Ukraine, obviously, I think also, even though it's been incredibly difficult for the people of Ukraine and they have shown the world incredible determination and bravery and we're not giving up, I think, um, it has also formed alliances that had been hurt, um, prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, and you now see countries coming together in ways that you didn't see before. Um, but you also see another set of countries aligning China Russia, Iran, um, North Korea, all of whom have been the top four sort of national security threats for the U.S. for more than a decade now. Um, so I think we're sort of witnessing a, a changing world right in front of our eyes, and, and it's fascinating. But to me, sort of understanding the interconnectivity of all of this is, is really important. I guess, guess, you know, riffing on building on your um, Ukraine um, your, your, your Ukraine example there's also perhaps the third group of the allies but being slightly awkward from a u.s standpoint which includes india who you know firmly indicated they are not they want no party to um western-led sanctions against russia and are yeah. quite happy to buy as much oil as possible and yet they are part of you know that, that indo-pacific um grouping so that must yeah. make some awkward conversations. And countries like Saudi Arabia as well. I would put in that same bucket, right? The U.S. Is, has a close relationship with Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia also just hosted Chinese leader Xi Jinping uh, for talks on ways to work more closely in the future. And China is dependent um, on oil and energy um, from Saudi Arabia and from Russia. And so I think that's you know kind of bigger picture. If the cipher brief is able to kind of connect dots on how all of this fits together and paint a picture for the future, then we're finding success. But to your point, I think um, there are lots of countries out there that, you know, India, Saudi Arabia, that have incredible influence and, and place in the world and where they're kind of falling into this uh, this new series of alliances is, is definitely something we can't take our eye off of and complicated. Right. What were the reactions of, of some of the principles that you talked with in the wake of the um, Russian-Saudi collusion on oil production um, a short while ago? Um, 
We have a fantastic expert we talk to a lot on that issue, um, Norm Rule. And Norm was the national intelligence manager for Iran, at the director of national intelligence, essentially responsible for collecting all of the intelligence um, on Iran specifically. And since retiring, he's kind of broadened out into the Middle East. And we've had a couple of kind of members briefings with Norm to kind of really dig into the weeds and understand the implications of this. I think you know, it's no secret that oil is closely tied to the economy and closely tied to national security. And watching what happens there is going to be really important as we move forward. Um, watching what happens with OPEC and the decisions that are made there and OPEC plus and all of these things are, you know, things we constantly keep an eye on and they're never going to go away. What is your assessment of the United States cyber capabilities, particularly its cyber defense capabilities? We also at the Cypher Brief run something called the Cyber Initiatives Group. So we meet regularly with um, principals, and you can go to cyberinitiativesgroup.com to see who they are. We're very transparent about who we're talking to um, from the public and private sectors. And one of the things that this group regularly kind of reports back is that um, the U.S. is in a much stronger place today, I think, than it ever has been when it comes to American readiness um, in cyber, both on offensive and defensive sides, which are both really important in the, the age we're living in. Um, I think the restructuring of sort of government um, under the Biden administration, um, I think the naming of Chris Inglis as a national cyber director, I think the growth and continued investment in the Cyber uh, Security and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, which is mostly known as um, within the Department of Homeland Security, have been crucial. Um, and I think that, you know, the work the NSA does, and it won't always talk about all of it, but the NSA just has exquisite capabilities in cyber that gives it insight into things that you and I will probably never hear about unless there's a headline or something happens. So I feel confident um, just based on the people I've talked to, and, and that would be, you know, in the multiple dozens of folks who are cyber experts from around the spectrum, both in government and in the private sector, um, with U.S. capabilities in cyber, uh, that doesn't mean that um, we're not all at risk and that we all shouldn't understand kind of basic hygiene when it comes to either you or me or our parents or friends um, understanding don't click that link. Um, just because something looks like it comes from somewhere, you know, the basics of look at the, the email address that it was sent to you from. It might have your friend's name at the beginning, but at something you've never seen, or there might be spelling errors or, you know, changing passwords. All these super basic things, I think, are indicative of the new world we're living in. And, and you and I need to know these things as much as the professionals in Washington do. Um, but I think that, you know, especially with ransomware, um, we've seen growth in ransomware, which is particularly difficult, um, just explode. I remember talking to Kevin Mandia, and Kevin was had a fire eye at the time when the solar winds um, was discovered, and and that was incredible um, cyber-based espionage effort, incredibly successful until discovered. Uh, I think there are still things that you know we're going to be learning for years about what really happened with cyber um, in the solar winds attack, but. These are constantly things that you just got to be vigilant about. A lot of the people I talk to um, say things like, you know, we need to be looking at new products with cyber baked in from the beginning, not trying to tack it on. And these are very similar conversations that we were having decades ago when the Internet was just being introduced. Right. You can't think about Internet security after you've launched it. Well, you can't think about cybersecurity like after you're already out there and have all this exposure. It's much, much easier if you start, you know, from a security mindset. But. 
the reality is like, I mean, the horse is already out of the stable and a lot of us are really kind of finding ourselves under the gun now for finding ways that we can at least defend, um, that we can share information for a stronger defense. Um, one of the things that I really loved, we talked with Chris Inglis. Um, he was one of the guests down at the Cypher Brief Threat Conference that we do every year in October. And he had this great phrase that sort of summed up the government philosophy today, which is they're trying to create a system where to beat one of us, you have to beat all of us. And I think that's just brilliant. And I think it, it really speaks to the importance of public-private information sharing in cyber and building alliances that work. Um, government, you know, communicating uh, with each other in ways that are effective and not cumbersome. Um, information flow going much faster than it has in the past. All of these things are really top of the agenda in the cyber. Is there a perception within the national security community that an excessive focus on the war on terror has distracted us from confronting the emerging strategic threats, namely China? I think that may have been the case, you know, a decade or so ago. Um, I feel like that's not the case anymore. Um, I, I feel like terrorism is still a really viable threat that we don't talk about a lot. And we usually won't until there's an event that happens. Um, but it's still a threat. But I, I think that strategically, you know, within government, um, even within the private sector, um, there's a, a knowledge that China is the pacing threat here. Um, I think more and more people are becoming aware that, that that's to say that people within national security circles understand this very well. I think, um, you know, for the general population, it might not be as easy to understand um, simply because you're not following it every single day. You're not understanding, you know, if something happens this week, how it might be related to last week and more importantly, what it might be building up to for next week. I think um, there's a, a, a really solid understanding, though, within government on the strategic uh, importance of having you know, sort of plans and strategies that address multiple threats. This is multiple people have told me, including, you know, General Mike Hayden, um, John McLaughlin, who, of course, was acting director of CIA, that we've lived in a world in the past that's been more dangerous, but never one that has been more complicated than today. So I think sort of, you know, rolling back those layers and understanding the layers of complication um, is really important. That, that's what we're here for, to try to help do that. That leads very neatly to my next question. Is the U.S. intelligence apparatus overly complicated? I mean, what are the drawbacks of the alphabet soup of agencies with overlapping responsibilities and competing interests? You know, I think just from a personal perspective, I always think uh, simpler is better. And when it comes to government, there are layers of bureaucracy that can complicate things. But that said, um, I do feel like we have an intelligence community in particular that works really well together. I think um, there are still areas, you know, there was a lot of conversation back when I was intelligence correspondent for CNN about do we even need a director of national intelligence anymore? Like, let's just do away with this. And, you know, it's too big and bloated. And and I think there are always going to be those conversations. And I think there's always going to be bloat in government, no matter what you do. However, um, I, I really feel like, and maybe it's because I'm in it every day and I'm constantly talking with a lot of these folks at these different agencies, but I do feel like there has been a huge improvement in kind of the information sharing in streamlining, in trying to better organize against threats. A lot of those lessons that we learned post 9-11, and, and that was really an information sharing issue um, the lessons have been learned. And I think, you know, 
I think we have an organization today within the intelligence community that's functioning um, far more efficiently um, than it was maybe previously, not really understanding um, how to deal with this emerging complicated world. I'd like to pull back the lens a little bit to take in to take in public perception of U.S. intelligence. What are the most significant misapprehensions that the American public has about the national security apparatus in the U.S.? I think there's always, um, you know, there are always groups of people who feel like anything that is a secret has to be bad. Um, and, and that's just kind of, I don't know, human condition, human way of thinking. I think that not everything that's secret is bad. Um, I think that it's bad when it's secret and there's no oversight. Um, but in the U.S., I think when you have elected officials in Congress um, with oversight capabilities, people that, that we have chosen to be in those roles and, and we've given our trust to who can oversee all of these secrets, um, I think that builds in an important layer of trust. But I feel among the general population, when I talk to people, they're like, oh, you know, the CIA. And, and it's not a lot of people, but some will be like, oh, the CIA is bad. I watch a lot of movies, you know, and and that that kind of is always a you know, Hollywood is actually a really important part. And we can talk about that of sort of perception of U.S. government in general. But um, I, I just feel like anytime there's a secret, there's always a risk that something bad is happening that you don't know about. And I feel like the fear among Americans who, you know, really believe strongly in their independence and their right to privacy and their and they should. Um, and I agree with that. And I share that with them. But I think um, anytime you tell people like that, you know, there are things you can't know about because it will endanger national security. It's a little hard. But I think, you know, I think the intelligence community is effectively doing its job and effectively gathering what it needs to using sources and methods, of course, that it can't disclose. Because if I tell you, uh, Lonzo, that, you know, I was able to, because of a spy that was closely placed to Russian President Vladimir Putin, I know this information about what he's going to do next. Now, if I tell you that, what are you going to do with that information? You're going to tell 30 other people. They're going to tell someone in the media. That's going to be everywhere. And that that source is now no good anymore and probably dead. So I think if we remind people of the reasons why um, the intelligence community operates sometimes, you know, in secret, it's, it's good to understand that. And then also remind them that there are oversights in place uh, within Congress by law. Um, where people have to go and testify and answer questions that, you know, members of the, the House and the Senate can ask them. Um, I feel like it gives me a little bit more reassurance. It doesn't mean that anything's perfect because we don't live in a perfect world. Um, but I appreciate, I appreciate that we've built a system um, in a democracy that um, is as close as I think we can get to, to doing it right. I'll ask a variant of that question. What do you think the U.S. public should know about how U.S. intelligence works that perhaps they don't? I do think they should understand... Um, kind of what we talked about, the reasons why certain things must be kept secret, um, the efforts that the intelligence community is making to be more transparent and when they can be more transparent, to tell you how they're thinking about open source data, to tell you what the rules are for spying on U.S. citizens versus non-U.S. citizens, what the rules are for um, espionage operations inside the U.S. versus outside the U.S. I think understanding oversight and that you actually get a voice in who is implementing oversight by who you vote for um, in the voting booth. I think these are important things for Americans to understand. And this is when I talk about the context of really understanding something like it's difficult if you just read a headline and, and you don't really understand everything that, um, you know, goes along with that headline. 
um, you don't really understand context, then it's, it's easy to get emotional and upset about something. But if you simply ask two or three questions that pop into mind when reading something and you get answers to those questions, all of a sudden you're like, ah, okay, I got this. I understand. <laughs> Um, and it's a very different emotional reaction. And I think that's important because disinformation, as I mentioned, really, really um, is effective because people get emotional. And and the more we can calm ourselves down, uh, ask a few really intelligent questions, understand context, the more that we're going to make better decisions, I think, as as Americans. Based on your extensive experience reporting on intelligence and national security matters and getting to know a lot of the principles involved in that world, what do you think of Hollywood's portrayal of the U.S. intelligence apparatus and its activities? Well, it's always more fun to be a bad guy than a good guy, I think. <laughs> um, unless it's Top Gun, which, of course, everybody loves a good guy. But I think that it's really easy to, um, to look at organizations that do operate in secret and, and make them bad guys and just say, yeah, but what if? You know, what if James Bond had this villain who was able to do this? Or, or what if Jason Bourne was part of this, you know, secret platform that was um, bad? I, I think it's, it's easy to do that. Um, I, I have friends in Hollywood who, are, who have done really successful TV shows based on making certain agencies look not so good. Um, I, I feel like, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Like it's everybody kind of knows it's Hollywood, so don't believe it. But to be honest, if all you see is a movie and, and you're living in another country outside the U.S. and all you see is a movie, uh, you're going to kind of believe it. So I, I do think there is a, a perception issue um, there that isn't always uh, reality. But Hollywood's very good at that. You mean there wasn't a Treadstone project like in the I know. film? Well, let's just say if there was, you and I probably wouldn't know about it. <laughs> but we would hope that a, an oversight committee would have caught it and done something. <laughs> it's very classified indeed. How, yeah. how about films like Zero Dark Thirty? I mean, that was part of, you know, that was the war on terror at its height. Yeah, I think Zero Dark Thirty was really interesting because there, it, 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 I don't think a lot of people know this, but there is a division within the CIA, um, within the, the communications and the press affairs office there that actually will welcome in credible people who are working on projects in, in Hollywood um, and other places that are entertainment focused or trying to tell a true story in an entertaining way or whatever it is. They'll actually work with them if they feel like they're credible and they've done, you know, they're just not out to do like a quick, you know, kind of slam job um, on getting facts right. And in the particular case of Zero Dark Thirty, the CIA worked closely with the makers of that film to kind of make sure that they got the big things right. And it might not be the same dialogue and the actors or actresses may not have looked like that. And they may have added in a scene here or there, but I think for the most part, um, the effort to do that is, is a sign that, you know, the agency is aware of the perceptions that can happen if they don't participate. Um, and I think they sometimes do, you know, a really effective job of sharing more information and more interesting things that we might not know that are true um, that we wouldn't have otherwise known. So I, I'm glad they do it. Um, there's always controversy around who gets access and, you know, everything else. But I think um, anytime you do anything in the world, you're going to find people who embrace it and people who want to criticize it. That's just the nature of the world we live in. Right. What, what, what were the examples of things that they revealed that perhaps we didn't know about in the public beforehand? I think just a lot of details um, specifically um on how the, the hunt for bin Laden, um, things about, you know, 
how long it took them to follow the trail of clues. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think it puts a human face on it too because they're not like faceless people who are out there doing the CIA's work around the world. These are people who have families. Um, you know, there there was a the bombing in coast um, that killed operatives who believed they were on the trail of Ayman al-Zawari. Um, it, it killed seven CIA officers and injured even more um, people who are still living with some of those injuries today. These are people who had kids. Um, they had lives. If you and I saw them on the street. Yes. Yeah. Um, forward, operates, forward operating base Chapman. If you and I saw them on the street, Lonzo, we wouldn't think twice. We'd be like, oh, okay, this guy is pumping gas next to me or this woman who's shopping with me in the grocery stores. So I think it helps to understand um, who these people are, um, who are taking on these jobs and these roles and really giving up much of their lives in order to pursue them. I think it almost becomes an obsession when you're tracking a terrorist like Osama bin Laden or Ayman al-Zawari. And you and I maybe don't realize that. We just think, oh, the government's taking care of it. You know, they're looking for him. They're after him. But not really understanding what goes into sort of making the sacrifices to find those people. Um, I think it's one of the things that Zero Dark Thirty did um, and did well. I, I don't think, you know, we're obviously not going to learn too much about tradecraft that the CIA doesn't want out there. Um, but I think just understanding the human element of it and how it really works, how this business really works is extremely valuable and interesting. I'd like to focus our lens on the people in, in, in greater detail now. Apart from the appointment of Gina Haspel as director of the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Intelligence Establishment has long resembled an old boys club. Is yeah. that changing? Yeah, it's changing a lot, and it, it, it can't happen fast enough, <laughs> I think. You know, when I, um, when I worked at CNN as the intelligence correspondent, one of the things I was really dismayed about is every single person I saw on TV explaining, you know, what just happened in Syria, why is this important, give us an intelligence perspective on this, or what just happened in Moscow, or whatever it may be, um, were men, older men, and they happened to mostly be Caucasian. And I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> This is not the world we're living in. I knew that this wasn't reflective of the CIA in particular. Just from like covering that beat, I knew that a huge portion of the CIA is made up of women. So I was kind of scratching my head thinking, why aren't we hearing from more of these women? Um, women make up a huge part of, of the sort of intelligence community overall. They're doing really important work. These aren't token females that have been put into male positions. I mean, they are driving change. They are leading at every level, and we weren't seeing that. So I remember just pushing and pushing, pushing, and trying to do a series of just plain profiles. I'm like, okay, fine. You don't want to talk about sort of, you know, secrets or missions or issues that you're specifically working on, and this was a decade ago. Let me talk about you. Let me talk about your job, your role. Let's just, like, start to understand that there are more than just, you know— older white men working in this world. And and that doesn't disparage older white men. They're doing amazing things as well. But that's not the face of the community. And I think lately, um, just in the last 10 years, since I've been working, you know, kind of covering them from a journalistic perspective, I've seen huge change. Um, Just the opening arms of like, you know, diversity of all levels um, has been encouraging because I feel like the world we're living in is, once again, not post-World War II anymore. And if we're going to be competitive, we have to understand how to think differently. And you cannot do that by having, you know, all, one group of people um, you know, kind of driving a mission. You, you've got to have multiple voices in those conversations. You have to have multiple skill sets 
You have to have multiple understandings and backgrounds, people who are raised differently, people who excel in you know different things. I, I feel like it's really important. And I feel like just as I mentioned, the last 10 years, there's been huge changes um, on that front. So I'm proud to say that with a cipher brief, you know, now a huge portion of the experts we work with on a daily basis are women. And these are women who have worked on the analysis side of the CIA. They have worked on the operations side at the CIA. They are women who are leading at the director of national intelligence. They are women who are doing incredibly important work at the National Security Council. Um, they are women who are cryptologists and scientists who are working at NSA and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And they're doing amazing things. And I feel like if there's one win over the last decade, it is that, you know, we and others have been able to present a more accurate picture of what the intelligence agencies look like today. And, and that's important because you want to know, you want to know where the information is coming from and who's driving it and who's changing things and who's leading. Um, so I feel better. But is, is it that the representation, is it that the number of women in national security positions um, of influence has increased over the last decade or that they are getting on camera or online that they're able to talk about their work? I think more of them are uh, willing to come out now. So I feel like it's a, it's a uniquely female thing that I've run into um, when covering, you know, anybody who's working in the national security sphere. There's been this hesitation more by women than men to get out there and talk about what they're doing. And this is, again, like a decade ago. I think it's changed a lot in the past few years. I, I think the hesitation, you know, just from everything I've learned, some of the smartest women I know don't want to tell you how smart they are. Some of the smartest women I know don't want to get out there and have any publicity. They just want to be quiet, focused, do a really good job, go home to their families at night, come back the next day and start all over. Um, I, I think there's just a different focus that I've seen over the years between some men and some women, but women just don't like to talk about their accomplishments. Um, I'm always a cheerleader for trying to get more women to talk and and to share their stories because it's inspiring to other women. And, and I feel like it's important to let them know it's not bragging. It's not narcissistic to come out and talk about the role that you've played in this and then to go beyond that and help me understand things that you think I need to understand um, to get a better grip on these issues. So they have, I mean, an incredible amount of knowledge and experience to bring to the conversation. And I'm incredibly inspired to see that more of them um, are willing to come out and talk about it. Um, we had 50% of our speakers at our threat conference last year who were women, which is you never you never see that anymore. Um, well, you didn't a few years ago. I think today's different. It's changing rapidly, and it's important. Mm. So, so a few years ago, it was more a, a case of reticence and if not self-censorship, then it, it was more reticence than lack of actual numbers within the intelligence community or official um, restrictions preventing them from the going on camera or talking to print journalists. Yeah, I definitely think that um, that the CIA definitely in particular went through a period of time where it was just kind of male dominated. And, and again, this goes back to sort of the days of the OSS and, you know, the precursor to the CIA in World War II. And it was a different world. Um, but I definitely think today things have changed dramatically and and women are starting to slowly understand that what they're doing is really important and talking about it 
doesn't mean that you're trying to take all the credit. And talking about it doesn't mean that you're trying to angle yourself for a better position. And talking about it, you know, I just think being a woman myself coming up through, you know, uh, male-dominated industries a lot of times, um, I've always just felt like, okay, head down, do the work. Things will sort itself out in the future. Don't be focused on you or your name or your position, your brand. And I think that's how a lot of women still think today. They're like, okay, I, I'm, I want to focus on the mission. I don't want to focus on me. Um, and, and a lot of it too is personality based, right? There's introverts and extroverts out there and the extroverts love to go out there and talk about themselves and how important they are and what they've seen and what they've done. And that also helps bring context to things. But it's those more introverted people who I, I think, and I'm not a scientist or doctor, but tend to be women who just don't like to focus on themselves and, and the roles they play. But again, uh, it's changed. And I'm really happy to see that change. I think it's important. In 2009, you wrote a well-received book on Eric Prince and Blackwater. How has the role of private military contractors evolved since then? That was, um, you know, I remember, Lonzo, I think you and I were both working in the same massive CNN newsroom um, during uh, Fallujah um, when, you know, we saw for the first time what could happen to contractors. And it was horrific. Um, There were contractors who were working for Blackwater um, driving through the city of Fallujah and they were attacked by a mob and they were killed and their bodies were drugged through the streets and burned and hung from a bridge. I mean, it was horrific. And I think it was a wake-up call when people realized that these people that this had happened to weren't military. They were over there voluntarily, and in this case, like moving kitchen equipment. Well, what are they doing there? And, and you know, why are they there? And who's paying them? And what else are they doing? And I started asking a lot of questions after that had happened. Um, and then, you know, the roles that they were playing in Iraq, um, the Nisor Square incident happened, and there was a shooting. And so... Um, a lot of these guys are armed and are in situations where, you know, they might not have a whole lot of experience in being in situations like that before and pull a trigger and then an entire incident, you know, can get really ugly really fast. Um, I just kept asking questions to the State Department in particular, to the military, which directed me to the State Department to say, why are U.S. Marines not taking on a lot of these tasks or why aren't members of the Army taking on a lot of these tasks? Why are you going to contractors? And, you know, the answers, a lot of the answers I spell out in the book, and the book is uh, Master of War, USA's Eric Prince and the Business of War. Um, the answer back was, we don't have enough people. You know, we, we, we need to go out and get more support for some of these jobs. Um, and as we saw that develop, you know, from 2000 to 2010, there was a lot of sort of belly gazing and, and sort of asking the question of, okay, fine. Like, we understand we need to have contractors what jobs need to be inherently governmental? Only government employees should be, what, carrying weapons, um, you know, have the ability to engage. Um, where do we draw those lines? Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of that, um, it, it never really went away. Um, you've got a lot of, um, I'm sort of losing train. Let me let me go back and just redo um, a bit of that. I think I think when you fast forward to today, there's still um, a heavy use of contractors that is a huge value to the government when they need to surge in places like Iraq or I mean, Afghanistan, whatever it might be. And then once a you know an issue kind of calms down, they can change tactics, and you're not just creating a massive government full of people who you know warriors and, and people with those skill sets that you don't have a place for anymore. 
Um, I, I think there's a real argument to be made for the value of contractors. I think the oversight of the contractors um, was the question there. And I think, you know, the story um, that I wrote of Eric Prince in Master of War was really a story of the government working very furiously to address a need without necessarily thinking at the same time about the rules that needed to be in place to oversee and guide this. Um, but there's no way that we'll be living in a world where contractors aren't valuable to the U.S. government and to the national security mission. They're always going to have value. It's, it's a matter of whether the government has imposed and, you know, the regulations that need to be imposed in order to make sure that bad things aren't happening. Has the perceived utility of private military contractors to the national security apparatus and the intelligence um, functions in particular changed since the Blackwater days of 2004 onwards to I think, 2007? Um, I think it has. I think so. Two things. The people who sort of understand the challenges that government faces, whether it's in gathering intelligence around the world or supporting military operations around the world, inherently understand the value uh, that contractors bring to that mission. I think when you've got, you know, sort of poster boys for bad behavior, like you had uh, with Blackwater uh, a lot of times, because the bad things are what grab the headlines, not the good things. And Blackwater had a number of bad things happen that grabbed headlines. I think when you have a public who's only seeing that, only seeing the bad side, they're believing it's a bad practice in general. I think when you, once again, provide the really important context, context around why these decisions were made, uh, the jobs that they're carrying out, why all of those jobs aren't being you know, filled by government workers instead, when you understand sort of how all of the pieces move, um, it makes perfect sense that, that the U.S. would need contractors. But Again, it's sort of the inside the Beltway understanding and the outside the Beltway understanding that the people outside who don't understand the day-to-day -day mechanisms are going to believe the headlines because it's all they see and I don't blame them. If all I read were headlines from, you know, one particular or, or if all I did was watch one particular news network and not any others, I'm going to start to believe what I'm hearing on that news network all the time. So I feel like, you know, it's the responsibility of us if we really want to understand something to dig a little deeper, get a broader context. But Contractors definitely, I, I believe, are critical to the mission. It doesn't mean that all contractors are good. It doesn't mean that all contractors are professional. Uh, it certainly doesn't mean that the government should take its eye off of having oversight um, of contractors. But I think that contractors are critical to the U.S. national security mission. When Leon Panetta came in as director of central intelligence under President Obama, he disbanded Eric Prince's quote-unquote hit squad that had been targeting um, foreign terrorists. And Panetta was very um, clear in his distaste for that sort of operation. Has that distaste lingered throughout the national security apparatus? So I, I, I feel like um, having covered this story for a long time, you can't believe every single detail that you read in the paper, because a lot of times the agency won't comment on something. When an excellent journalist, let's say from the New York Times, calls them, they'll offer no comment. So a journalist relies on sources they do have, and those sources go into the story. So it, it's sort of an important backdrop of the reason why I share you know, how the sausage is made in the world of journalism. Because if agencies won't comment on certain things, then you're going to go with the sources you have. And that becomes what we believe as readers, because that's what we're exposed to. I think the distaste, though, to the, the bigger part of your question about 
was their distaste about, you know, what, how Eric Prince in particular was operating. I think there definitely was. I think one of the things I tried to do in the book, and, and I had incredible access. I mean, Mr. Prince cooperated with interviews. I traveled with him to Afghanistan. I sat in on meetings he had um, with other countries and members of NATO, with U.S. officials, um, trying to convince them of the value that his company was bringing to the mission and, you know, to give them more work. Um, it, it was just eye-opening to kind of see how these conversations go and the fact that there are needs. But I, I do think that the bad headlines and sort of Eric Prince's, I will say, style in general um, put a lot of people off. He is a fascinating individual. In fact, the opening chapter of my book, I talk about kind of a bike race that he was in. And in just reading that one opening chapter, you really get a sense of the determination he is someone who, in a lot of ways, has a lot of qualities that are admirable. He is frustrated with government. He thinks it's too slow. It's too bloated. If there's a, a mission that needs to be done, um, if soldiers need weapons, they need the weapons. Stop the layers of meetings and the red tape and everything else. So in, in some ways, I appreciate the drive to get things done faster. And I understand the frustration. On the other side, there are really important rules and reasons why you can't just ship guns to any country under any situation when people need them. And I'm just using that as a random example. Um, and, and, and Mr. Prince isn't someone who loves rules. He's just not that kind of individual. And so I think that's when you started to see the real distaste develop around, um, I'll say, an unappreciation for some of the rules that were in place because they didn't make sense to him. They were stupid, I think, to him. And my opinion, again, as the author of the book, um, I can understand that, but I can also understand that if you're not going to follow rules, you can't really function in a government that functions on rules. So that's where I think, you know, it, particularly in his case, um, people started to take sides. You're either pro-Eric Prince or, you know, negative Eric Prince. Um, and he, he just, he had an enormous amount of influence and power, partly because of the timing of when he was able to sort of step in and support a mission when the U.S. government didn't have a lot of alternatives. In fact, I think one of the, the largest contracts at the time, and I wrote about this in the book as well, um, was given to um, a, a Brit because there were no other um, U.S. Uh, options for kind of filling the need that the U.S. had. And so when there was an American option, all of a sudden um, the government, you know, went in that direction. But it's a, it's a fascinating story. Um, I think if anyone tells you, I love Eric Prince, or I hate Eric Prince, or I love Blackwater, or I hate Blackwater, it's someone who's read a headline, but hasn't really dug into how complicated that story is. Because it's really fascinating. And, and I understand it, like I, I said, because I, I spent two years of my life really focused on this one company and the government interaction and the need, um, and, and just found it really interesting on a number of levels because it also helps you understand um, the shortcomings of government. Like how difficult is it for government to surge when you don't have particularly troops or intelligence officers who want to or are trained to operate in war zones? What do you do? Um, so it, it makes you answer the tough questions when you understand the big picture. Suzanne Kelly, thank you very much for joining us. Lanza, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on Discern This, and it's a pleasure to see you again. Thank you.